You're listening to Sermons at High Peak. Let me ask you this. Are you stinking rich? Are you? I know some of you are thinking, well, are you crazy? (laughs) That's your response. According to Charles Schwab's survey that was done very recently, they asked people, what amount of money makes you stinking rich? And for some reason, they broke it down by age. And I want to show you the results. According to people in Gen Z, that's the youngest group of adults, they said you have to have at least $1.49 million to be rich. For millennials, that's the next age up, you have to have $1.94 million set net worth to be rich. Generation X, that's my generation, says $2.53 million. And then if you're a boomer, I know a lot of you are, $2.63 million was the average answer to that question. Interestingly, in America, the average U.S. household worth is $692,000. That's how much they're worth when you take up all that their assets total up to and remove all their debt. It averages to that. Now, I know a lot of us look at that and think, well, that sounds like stinking rich, $692,000. But when you take away the top half, which is the people who are considered incredibly wealthy, that average household value of their net worth is $97,300. Now that same survey asked this question, do you believe that you will ever get rich? And if so, how long will it take you? 8% said they already are. 7% said within the next year. 17% said sometime in the next five years. 20 said uh, in the next 10 years. And 8% believe that in the next 25 years, they would be rich. Now those last two groups I find very interesting. In the next 10 to 25 years, they think that they will be rich. These are people who most likely are very far from it, but just have a lot of hope, have a lot of dreams. And they're also probably young enough to be able to think, I'm probably gonna live another 25 years. Do you want to be rich? Now answer that honestly. Some of people, you know, they like to sound as if they're pious or they like to sound humble and they say, no, I don't want to be rich. But it kind of reminds me of something that I heard Greg Groshaw say. He's the man behind Life Church. He's the pastor of Life Church. Some of you use the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app. Their church is the one who created that. It's the most popular Bible app on any phone or tablet. And he said this. What you don't have is what you need to be happy and fulfilled. Another way to think about it is, I just need a little bit more. And most people, if they're honest, I think that's the way they feel. I just need a little bit more. That could be a homeless guy living in the streets Or that could be a person with a mansion that's worth $5 million. I just need a little bit more. Well, today we're continuing our series that I've entitled Pots of Gold. Uh, And last week we talked about fame. You know what a pot of gold is, right? It's what they say is at the end of the rainbow. 
Well, no one ever finds the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So these are things that people desire, they long for, they really hope that they could find it in their life, but they always seem to be just out of reach. There's something that's a little bit too hard to gain. Even for people who work really hard in life, they're just a little bit away from them. And so the four things that we're going to look at is fame, and then fortune, approval, and then comfort. We've already looked at the fame, and that may not be nationwide or worldwide notoriety, but just the fact that people around you will think highly of you, and that your goal is to make certain that they know who you are, and that gives you the power that you have. Well, today we're going to look at the second one, fortune. Money and stuff is the way that a lot of people think about this. The amazing thing is, to some people in the world, the poorest Americans already are stinking rich. I got some another, another set of facts and figures I want to give you according to a Gallup survey. And this talked about the average household income by country. These are annual numbers of income. Look at this. Liberia. People on average make $781 per year. Can you imagine living off of that? Burundi, $673. Mali, $1,983. Boy, they're the rich ones, aren't they? Rwanda, they make $1,101 on average in a year. Sierra Leone, $2,330 in a year. These are third world countries where the thought of having everything you need at your home tonight is beyond them. They can't even imagine it. Now compare that to the United States, where our average income each year is $43,585. Luxembourg, one of the wealthiest nations, it's $52,493. There are these five European countries, except for one of them, it's over $40,000 a year. Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Canada, and then the one outside of Europe is Australia, essentially a Western culture nation, even if it's not in the West. And so I know a lot of you are here today and you're thinking, oh great, the preacher's going to talk about money. (laughs) Yeah, I am. And that's because Jesus actually talked about money more than he talked about heaven. Did you know that? That's hard to believe when you think about it. When you total up the number of verses where the primary topic about the verse is about money versus the verse is about heaven. There are more verses about money in the Gospels than about heaven. Now what we're going to look at today is a passage that kind of talks about both. And it's important for us to see this. So turn to Luke chapter 12. And we're going to see the parable of the rich fool. I know a lot of people think rich and fool, those are synonymous terms, right? If you're rich, you're probably a fool. (laughs) Not necessarily so. I've met a lot of very wise and intelligent and godly, giving, generous people who have money. But in this passage, Jesus, it says in the very beginning of the passage that he's speaking to a large crowd and he's teaching them. One of the things he teaches them is about the piety of the Pharisees. And he talks about how the sparrows, as small as they are, God never forgets them. And he always takes care of them. When one dies, he notices it. He says in this passage just before this one that we're going to look at, uh, this is the, the verse where it says, even the very hairs on your head are numbered. And as I always joke, it didn't take him that long for me. But for some of you, it's a long time to number those hairs. 
But what the point is, is that he loves you. He's taking care of you. He's watching out for every infinitesimal, tiny, little, bitty detail about your life. And so there's a man that interrupts him as he's teaching in verse 12. And look at what he said, in verse 13 rather. And this man, it starts out, it says, Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, Who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He then told them, Watch out and be on the guard against all greed. Because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. That's the main point about what Jesus wants to teach us in this parable. Most people seem to be more focused on their economic situation than their eternal situation. Most people are more interested in their bank account than God's ledger in heaven. They're more interested on getting on the Forbes list of the wealthiest people than on God's list of those welcome into the kingdom of God. More of us are focused on our economic situation than our eternal situation. This question that this man asks tells us about the problem that many of us have. And it has to do with our focus on our finances, on our positions, our possessions rather. That's our main concern. Now we're not sure what this man's dispute was with his brother. Uh, we can maybe guess at it. In that day, dividing the, herit the inheritance was done according to Jewish law. And uh, the principles that they had the rabbis teaching them at the time was that, you know, if every person, the, the oldest brother got a double portion and the rest of the brothers got a single portion of the inheritance. Sorry, ladies, you're left out. And so if there was two brothers in the family, then the older brother would get two thirds and the younger brother would get one third because he gets a double portion. And so maybe what's going on here is this older brother isn't giving him what he deserves, at least a third. He was wanting to hoard it all and keep it all for himself. And so it's very possible that the guy has a legal case, that if he had brought it before a judge, uh, that if he had brought it before a person who had the authority to make the decision, he'd likely win his case if that's what the decision or the dispute is about. But what Jesus answers him, he says, look, I, I'm not the one to judge about this. That's not my concern. And that's ironic because think about it. Who better to judge a dispute between brothers than Jesus himself, the one who is perfect, who knows all. But he says, that's not my primary concern in life. Your finances fall very low on the list of my priorities. And by the way, we're supposed to be like him, aren't we? And so even if it was owed him, like it probably was, Jesus, by just answering the question that way, is essentially saying, that's not what you ought to be focused on here. You ought to be more focused on your relationship with your brother than on what he owes you. Jesus often taught us that we should give up our rights, didn't he? You know, if, if someone asks you for something and you loan it to them, he in fact said, you know, don't ask for it back. In some of his teachings. So, you know, your next door neighbor says, could I borrow your weed eater? And then he keeps it for two months. <laughs> Jesus is essentially saying, don't go ask for it back. Just go get another one. He apparently needed it. Yeah, he owes it to you. It's your right to do so. By human terms, you have every right to go ask for it, but just let it go. Don't worry about it. Essentially what he's saying, when someone asks to borrow something, 
Just give it to them. Let them have it. If they want to return it, that's fine. If they don't, don't worry. If you can't afford to get rid of it, then maybe you shouldn't loan it out in the first place. I don't know. But maybe even that, he says, we ought to give sacrificially. Paul talked about giving up your rights in 1 Corinthians, the famous passage about eating meat sacrificed to idols. He said, you know, I have every right to eat any meat I want because of my spiritual beliefs about what God has taught. But you know what? If this hurts my brother, I'm going to give up my rights in order to help my brother. We don't have much like that today. But you know what? I think one of those things might be the use of alcohol. You know, there's a lot of teaching in the Bible about the abuse of alcohol. But there's not an awful lot of places that say you should never drink. But you know what? As a person who knows that in this country we have a lot of people who have problems with alcohol, I willingly give it up. I sacrifice that. Now, for me, it's real easy to do. I have no taste for it. I just don't like the stuff. I, I think it's nasty. I smell beer and I think of the breweries in downtown Milwaukee, that fermenting yeast that was so nauseating and made me sick. And honestly, it doesn't bother me a bit. Now, some of my fellow Milwaukeeans, they loved that. They thought it was like the bread smell in downtown Valdez. But to me, it was gross. And so I don't have a problem. But you know, there's a lot of people struggling with, with alcoholism and seeing you drink might lead them to take another drink. And so maybe it's best we give it up just as a way of showing our love for our fellow man to say, you know what? I don't need that stuff. I can give it up if it will help you out. But the truth here is, the problem is that economics for many people is more important than eternity. Now, a lot of us will say quickly, I don't have a problem with that. I'm not rich, don't want to be rich. You know, money isn't a big focus of my life. Well, let me ask you a few questions. To, let's make sure. Maybe you don't. Maybe God has given you, given you conquered uh, attitude over this problem in your life. But there's an article written by a psychologist named uh, Carolyn Stieber, and she wrote, Ways to Tell If You Own Too Much Stuff. She's one of these experts on, you know, how to, like, simplify your life. She said one is that you have clothing all over the floor. <laughs> if you've got clothing all over the floor, then you've got too many clothes. She says, you don't have to unpack after a trip because you've still got plenty to wear. Uh, you have or think that you need to rent a storage unit because you have so much stuff. Your closets are overflowing. You have boxes of things stored up you haven't even looked at in years. Your nightstand is covered with stuff that you often don't even move around. You have things that you don't need or even want but are emotionally attached to them. You have valuables that you don't need but also debt that you don't want. See, all of these, she says, are signs that you probably have too much, and maybe it's time to start simplifying and getting rid of things. The story in this parable of what Jesus told this man, I think, comes on the heels of that thought very well. Look at verse 16 of Luke chapter 12. This is talking about Jesus. Then he told them a parable right after this man interrupted him and asked him about, you know, splitting his inheritance. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said in verse 18. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. 
Now let's look at these details that we see here. First of all, the man is rich, and yet his land produces for him even more. Now that's not unheard of. You might have a bumper crop one year if you're a farmer. You might have a lot. You've done really well. You're a good farmer. You've stored up an awful lot. But then you get this bumper crop, more than you've ever even thought, more than you even hoped you'd get that year. So what do you do? Well, a lot of you have gardens. How many of you have a garden? Raise your hand. Do you have a garden at home? Yeah. Is your garden doing well? Maybe some of you saying some a little bit, some not so much. You know, I can remember, was it last year, Barb, she planted green beans and we kept getting green beans over and over again. It was great. We loved it because we like green beans. And uh, sometimes your, your crops come in. Sometimes your garden comes in. But what was this man's first impulse when he had far more than he needed already and he got even more? Was his first impulse, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have a farmer's market down there at the road. I'm going to put all my goods out there and I'm going to put an ad in the local paper saying, all of you poor people, come on over. I've got bushels of food that I'll just give away. First come, first serve. I've got more than I need. I can't store it anymore. My, my silos are full. My barns are full. You know, my storage unit's full. I've got too much. So I'd be happy to give it away. Was that his first impulse? No. His first impulse was, I've got too much. So I'm going to go through the trouble of unloading all my barns finding some place to store it temporarily, tear down all those barns and build even bigger ones. And then I can move all that stuff back in and then store all of this stuff as well. Now notice it didn't just say his crops, it also said possession. So he's not just got a bumper crop, he's got more stuff. How many of you say, boy, I can feel that. I've got too much stuff. All right. Now if people were being honest, I'd be getting amens all over the room, wouldn't I? Uh, these, these storage units are making a killing on Americans who have too much stuff. And so his thought to us, and he even says it to himself. He says, I'll say to myself, as, you know, how many of you do that? You plan what you're going to say to yourself later on. But that's what he does. He plans it out. I'll say to myself, hey, you've got all this. Just take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. In other words, he just wants to retire because he's got so much. The big goal of life for many people is early retirement. How many of you would love early retirement? Maybe you're, you know, in your 40s or 50s and you think, you know, I'm just going to I'm just going to retire early. Now, it's one thing if you've got kind of the job that allows you to retire, say, after 30 years. And so maybe you're in your 50s and you retire, but then you say, but I'm going to keep working. I'm going to go find another job. Barb's about, what, five years from retirement, but she's already talking about what she'll do to work after retirement. That's one thing. But a lot of people, their goal is to retire so they can get on easy street. And so they're sacrificing a lot of things to hit that point. And one of the things that a lot of people who early retire sacrifice is service to the Lord. They find themselves always on a vacation, always gone, always traveling, always somewhere else. And no, no one of them or many of them are unable to spend time and commit to the Lord during these kinds of times. Now, Barb and I went to college with a man named Chris Hogan, who works for Dave Ramsey's organization. Some of you know who Dave Ramsey is. And when you see Chris Hogan's picture on here talking about early retirement, uh, you'll notice him if you've watched it on Fox News or something like that. And Chris is a smart guy and has learned a lot. And he talks about this, how to, er how to retire early. 
He says, uh, one of the first things you have to do is you have to sit down and make a plan. Do the math. What's it going to take? And I'm not going to go through all of what he says, but it's pretty smart. And then he says, you want to get good. What does that mean? Good, G-O-O-D, getting out of debt. A lot of people would love to get good. And then he says, you start plowing cash into investments based on your plan that you made at the first step. And all of that is a noble goal. There's nothing wrong with wanting that. But there is a problem when you start sacrificing the Lord in your life in order to make more money, to amass more money and stuff at the sacrifice of what's really important, your family, your wife or your husband, your service to your church, serving people outside the church, serving God in all the ways that he's called on you to do so. So look at verse 20. The conclusion of this story, this parable of the rich fool. It says in verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, here's the problem. Wealth by itself is not a sin. As I said at the beginning, I've known many people that I would count as wealthy who have been incredibly generous, who have been very faithful to give to the Lord, who have been people that the church could rely on their support for doing things, that have given uh, of themselves to others in their church or in their community or in their family. They're always that person that people can go to and you can count on them. I've known many of them. In almost every church that I've been in, I could count one, two, three, four people like that. That I knew they had money, but I also knew that probably they had money is because they used it for the Lord wisely. And therefore God was blessing those who had a little and used it well with more. Because he knew they would use the more even better. The problem though is, and this man's problem was, his focus was on economics more than in eternity. He was more interested in his bottom line than his eternal home. I read the story about a group of construction workers uh, in Pompeii. They were planning to build something around the site of Mount Vesuvius where it had blown up in the ancient days. And you've heard this story, you know, the the volcano blew up and it just kind of hit all of a sudden and, and sort of froze people in time. And so there's been plenty of archaeological digs. Well, they had already gone through this region and now they were building on that site. They were building a foundation. But they dug up something that had not yet been found by the archaeologist. And it was a woman. It was her skeleton. And in her hands were her jewels. She had gone to get her jewels. Her money was so important to her. And what she did not realize was that very night, her soul was required of her. Just as Jesus said it in his parable that God said to the man building his barns bigger, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. In other words, you're going to die right now while you're planning how to make and get more. That's Jesus' message. Worldly treasure is not a wise investment because you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. You know, there was a play by that title, but the truth of it is scripture. You can't take it with you. 
There's an old joke, a man died, and uh, he believed that he could take his wealth to heaven. And so he made an arrangement with three clergymen in his community. And he invited them all to come over as he was on his deathbed. And he told each one of them, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give each one of you $250,000. I'm going to let you leave today with a check. And what I want you to do is I want you to take that money and save it for me. And when you find out that I am dead, I want you to come to my funeral and put the money in my casket. I know it's foolish and ridiculous for him to even believe that was possible. And in fact, the clergymen knew that that was the case, but they didn't say anything about it. They just agreed. Okay, sir, we'll do it. So the terrible thing happened. He finally died. They saw the notice and the lawyer sent them the invitation to the funeral. When they arrived, they each went one after another up to the casket. There was a Jewish rabbi and he had a little bag that he had brought, you know, large bills in and he put it inside the casket. And a Catholic priest, he had done the same. It was uh, a manila envelope that he had sort of wrapped up with rubber bands and he put it in the casket. And the, uh, the Baptist preacher came along and, and he had an envelope that he had put in, marked with the man's name on it. And afterwards, the three fellows decided, hey, let's get together and have lunch after the funeral is over. So they did. And they sat down. Well, just then the, the Jewish rabbi, he was feeling kind of guilty. And he said to them, guys, I, I've got to admit something. You know, our, our synagogue's kind of been in deteriorating shape and we're doing a major renovation and we're sort of short by about $100,000. And so, so I deposited $100,000 of that money and so... The envelope only had $150,000 in it. Just then the Catholic priest, he was feeling kind of bad too. And he said, well, we had a similar experience. We're setting up an endowment for scholarships for young people. And uh, we were told by the investors that they needed to get it started at about $150,000 to $200,000. And so I took $175,000 and, and I put it into that account. And I cashed the rest of it out. And that's what was in my little bag. And the Baptist preacher looked at them both and said, I am disgusted at you. I want you to know I put a check from my own personal account in that casket for the entire amount. <laughs> Think about it if you didn't quite get that. But The truth is we can't take our wealth to heaven. No matter how much you might want to, you might think you can. There's a bishop named Erwin Hughes who once preached a sermon to his congregation he said that God owned everything and we are merely the caretakers of God's possessions. And we should use that wealth we have to help God and build his kingdom. And one rich member of his church invited him to lunch after that sermon. He took a tour with him of his huge estate. He gave Bishop Hughes a tour of the gardens and uh, uh, the acres and acres of just woodlands that he had. And then he took him on the large farm a big industrial sized farm and all the people that were working with him and the very large barns and things that he owned. And finally, at the end of the tour, he had coffee with him in that afternoon on the back porch of his huge estate overlooking a, an amazing Olympic sized swimming pool. And as he had coffee served to them by servants, he looked at the bishop and he said, you know what? Can you really tell me that I didn't build all this, that all of this isn't mine. 
Can you really tell me that I don't own all this? I'm the one who made this. I came from nothing. The bishop looked at him and said, so you own everything here, right? Yes, I do. Answer that question in a hundred years. Think about it. Who's going to own all that you have in a hundred years? You say, well, I want to give it to my children. That's fine. But you know, I hear stories of children fighting over an inheritance and it causes the tear up of a family instead of bringing them together around it. The truth is you can't take it with you. That should never be your focus. But the most important question is this. What can you take with you? What can you? take with you into eternity. Look at verse 21. It says, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, Jesus' emphasis, his focus is on eternity instead of the present reality. He doesn't say it's a sin to be rich. He says it's a sin to make being rich your eternal focus. The real focus of your life should be the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and all this stuff will be added unto you. That's not a promise of wealth if you serve God. That's a promise of God taking care of you if you serve God. We'll talk more about that tonight. So I hope you'll come back as we look at the next passage. But his emphasis here is not on, on getting a huge home or, or owning a beautiful car or having more clothes than anyone knows what to do with so that when you get up in the morning, your life is like a fashion show as you try to decide what to wear because you just have too much. No, your focus should be on what you can do to bless others. I once had a boss uh, at the Domino's Pizza store. And he had us come over and he had this beautiful car. It was a, a late 80s or, or 1990 Acura NSX. And uh, so we went over to his house and I said, can I see the car? And so he took me out into the garage and he showed me his, his beautiful red Acura NSX. And it was beautiful. And I, I looked inside and, and this was before all the digital displays and you could see the mileage marker. He had had it for like two years and it had just a couple hundred miles on it. In other words, he was never driving that thing. And I said, do you never drive it? He said, well, I drive it at least once a month. I usually just start it up, take it around the block a few times, just to make sure, you know, the batteries don't die, to recharge them and that sort of thing. But on a beautiful day, you know, my wife and I will get in and we'll take it out for a ride on the Bluegrass Parkway or something like that. We just enjoy going through the countryside. But, you know, never more than about 10, 15 miles at a time. And I thought... That's a beautiful car. I sure wouldn't mind having one of those. At that time, I think they were valued at like $90,000, $100,000. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, that was a lot more than it is now for a car. But as I thought about it, and I've thought about it since, what a waste. He had so much more than he needed. Was it wrong for him to do so? Was it a sin? Not necessarily. But I didn't know him well enough to know what his spiritual condition was like when it came to finances. I knew he claimed to be a believer. He was a Christian, he said, but I didn't know enough about him. And, you know, it really wasn't my place to do that with my boss, to criticize him in that way. But I know this, that if I had that, to me, that would be a sin because I know what my focus would be on, that car instead of what God would want from me. The truth is, I think it's 
Wonderful. When you see someone who gets this, who understands it. I asked Daniel if I could share this story. He's working at South Mountain Camp and the staff is going through a book, a study on a book called Radical by David Platt. And uh, as he's been going through that study, he's been very inspired by it. In fact, it's kind of gotten a hold of his attention. And one of the things David Platt says in that is that, you know, maybe our focus shouldn't be on money and stuff. Maybe our focus needs to be more on the Lord and his kingdom. Just exactly what Jesus is teaching in this passage. And so he came home one of the weekends and he started organizing a bunch of his things and decided he was going to start selling it off in order to use that money more for the kingdom of God. By the way, if you want to buy some albums, I know where you can get some real cheap. The Gospel Coalition published a list about how we can apply this in our lives. Essentially, the list is how to become a generous giver. And the first one is this. See your role as a steward. Everything you own, you just have it in trust. It's not yours, it's God's. And he's given it to you to take care of and watch over. I think water illustrates this idea perfectly. Think about it. All the water on the earth generally flows into the ocean. Eventually it evaporates. And it comes out of the ocean, sometimes the rivers or lakes, maybe sometimes just the streets, but most of it evaporates out of the oceans and it forms clouds. And the clouds hold the water until it's time for it to drop the water on earth. All of us are very much like the cloud. We're just hanging on until we're told to shower those blessings out upon other people. That's the purpose of everything you own, everything I own, everything, money and stuff. Secondly, that list, it says, give locally. Bless the people right around you. God wants to use you, your tithes and your offerings. He says to bring into the local storehouse. To me, that is the church. That's where you start. If you're giving your tithe to your church first, over and above that, give to other causes, both locally but also give to the kingdom. That's the third thing. Anything that wins lost people or helps people feel and know the love of Jesus Christ in their life. Give to those causes when you can. Thirdly, or fourthly, give sacrificially. You know, Mark chapter 12 talks about the story of the widow's might, where the, the widow had just a coin and dropped it in to the metal collection device at the temple. And God said, she's given so much more than all these wealthy people who plunked down huge loads of money. C.S. Lewis said, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. And I like that statement. Number five, remember that God loves a cheerful giver. When you think of it this way, God loves a cheerful giver. That doesn't mean he doesn't love people who don't give cheerfully. It, what it means, it's sort of like this. When you see something that impresses you, you go, boy, I love that. It doesn't mean you don't love other things. It just means that grabs your attention and makes you say, wow, I'm impressed with that. I honor that action. And it, when God sees us give cheerfully, he says, I love that. The problem is that too many of us might take that and say, well, good, I'm not cheerful, so I don't have to give. No, the, the real issue is you need to learn how to get cheerful. And we do that by our focus on the love of Jesus and all that he has given us. 
Number six, give secretly, not for your glory, but for God's glory. Let me tell you about a few people in this church who have given secretly like this and that they've done such a wonderful thing. I want to tell all of you about it, (laughs) but I can't because they've sworn me to secrecy. Some of you have been the beneficiaries of this. I have too. But God has taught them that they need to give secretly and they've taken that seriously. And number seven, give consistently. You know, it's, it's nice when someone one time decides to make an offering to the Lord. But what God loves is a cheerful giver who consistently gives to the Lord. There's this old Chinese proverb, if you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. If you want happy for, happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help somebody. There's a woman named Allison Carmen. She said that one day she found $300 on the street and she couldn't find who it belonged to. And so she had this impulse in her mind, you know, I've just come across this and I don't know who it belonged to, but maybe what I'm supposed to do is give it away. And so that moment, she happened to be getting ready to go into a deli for lunch and a homeless man approached her and he said, could I maybe have something to eat? Do you have any money that I could get something to eat? And she will so, sir, I'm getting ready to go in here and get lunch. What would you like? Really? I, can I have anything I want? Oh, yeah, yeah, whatever you want. He said, well, I, I'd like some coffee and uh, give me enough packets of sugar so I can make it sweet. And I think I'd like a sandwich with toasted bread and mayonnaise on it. Okay. I'll be happy to get you that. So she went in and she got that and a few other things with it and, and paid about $20 for the lunch for the man, came outside and handed it to him. And she said when she gave him that bag and that cup of coffee, she said it felt so good. She said, I decided that the rest of that money, I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm giving it away. In that moment, she was talking to her friend who that very day had been telling her about some struggles she was having financially. And she had a bill that was due. It was about $100. And so she took the money and she gave the friend $100 and said, go pay that bill. Oh, no, I couldn't do that. Yes, you can. I want to give it to you. It makes me feel good. Please help me with this. I want to do this for you. So the friend was very happy and it made her feel very happy. She said that she carried that money around for months And just in little parts, gave it away. And she said, in that time, I found that giving away $300 gave me more joy than anything I've ever bought for $300. Let me ask you this. Do you look for chances to give? Do you use what God has blessed you with and say, I want to turn it around and pay it forward? I want to be a blessing to others. Do you look for chances to find causes that will help build the kingdom of God? Maybe an evangelistic something that you can do to help people share the gospel. Uh, Maybe it's something going on, a a church activity that's taking place and they need a little extra money. And so you say, I want to do that. I can afford it. I know some of you can't. You're struggling to even pay the bills. Let me just tell you, just give your 10% and God will bless the rest of it and take care of you. But some of us in this room have the ability and the money to give even more. Maybe what you need to do is have a yard sale and give the money away after you're done. So make this commitment. Find your one. Remember, we've been talking about who's your one. 
That one person that you can share the gospel with. That one person who needs to be saved. Find your one and find a way that you can serve them. And you know, maybe it'll cost a little bit of money with you taking them out to a lunch or buying them coffee. Or maybe they're struggling financially and they could use a blessing from you. Give someone something this week. Make that commitment right now. I commit to give someone something. Give someone your time this week. A lot of us have plenty of time. We just need to turn off the TV, shut down the computer, close the apps on our phone, and give people time. Give someone your prayers this week. If someone said to you, will you pray for me? Don't just forget it. Write a note to yourself if you're forgetful like I am. And commit to pray for that thing every day this week. And then go back and ask them, how'd it go? Share someone, give someone the gospel this week. Tell somebody about the love of Jesus and invite them to trust in Jesus as their Savior. Give the rest of us a chance to celebrate your giving by telling us how God has used you. Not bragging, not looking for attention, but that we might celebrate that God moved in your life this week. Thank you so much for listening to our sermons from High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, the pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. And if God has really spoken to you through this message, please get in touch with me. You can go over to highpeakchurch.com and look for a way to contact us. Or if you want, you can come directly to me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. We're also on Facebook, searching for High Peak Church. We'd love to see you. We have our services every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m. in our fellowship hall, and then also midweek service on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Please come and join us. We've got classes for all ages. God bless you, and thanks for listening.